Hey everyone, Paul here. You're listening to part two in our series entitled Jesus and John Verveke, Theology, Cognitive Science, Psychedelics, and Genuine Awakening. If you haven't done so already, I encourage you to listen to part one in this series before you jump into today's episode. In part one of this series, we explored some of the language and terminology from the work of cognitive scientist John Verveke and his work specifically surrounding the process of what some might call spiritual enlightenment or spiritual awakening. My goal has been to find the points of harmony and potential dissonance between Verveke's work and historic Christian theology. In that process, I've tried to give some helpful recontextualization to words like repentance. In the Greek, in the New Testament, that word is metanoia, meaning to change one's mind. Or another word that we may have lost some of the original contextual meaning to, sin. That Greek word in the New Testament is harmartia, meaning to miss the mark. And I think Verveke's work actually helps us to understand those words closer to the original contextual understanding of the first biblical audience. Thus far, we've talked about how a journey to genuine awakening marked by fruit that's in keeping with metanoia, requires a disruption to our normative frame, a doorway event that expands our conscious awareness of that which is beyond its previously normative bounds. There are all sorts of potential doorway events that can lead to an altered state of consciousness. And it's not that all of these altered states of consciousness lead to genuine awakening. Maybe the disruption that leads to an altered state of consciousness, consciousness, one of these doorway events. Maybe that disruption comes in the form of fasting or a dream while we're asleep, prayer or quiet meditation. But we also talked about how as embodied beings and not just Gnostic souls trapped in a physical body, that all of our spiritual experiences are mediated through our physical brains and bodies. This means that the things we ingest and bring into our bodies can produce physiological change that alters our state of consciousness and makes us more aware of what we might call the spiritual domain, a dimension of reality that Christianity, along with many of the other major world religions, has historically affirmed as very real and very much integrated within reality, though we aren't always sure how. I've argued that we psychologically and spiritually, and I do not wish to bifurcate the two, that we enter into that state of greater conscious awareness of the transcendent spiritual domain once we've pushed beyond an initial layer of egotistical concerns and moved into what some cognitive scientists would call a state of self-transcendence. We enter into this domain as we go beyond the wall of self-transcendence, beginning to relate to a power or powers beyond ourselves. Again, as I mentioned in the first episode, to simply relate to a power beyond ourselves may not automatically be for our good. Breaking free from the prison of egotism and the imminent frame is wonderful, but 
we should also navigate these waters of transcendence respectfully, <laughs> not naive to the fact that there are powers beyond us that are not automatically for our good. If you remember back to my second conversation with John Verveke, John seemed to agree that the famous occult practices and the spiritual rituals by the Nazis had the Nazis drawing upon some sort of principality and power that were not for humanity's good. Who could argue that the ancient civilizations that practiced ritual human sacrifice to appease the powers that they perceived to be beyond themselves had positively been transformed by whatever revelation they received in any sort of altered state of consciousness that would bring that revelation to them. Whatever or whoever it was that put into the minds of ancient people that to appease powers beyond ourselves, we needed to sacrifice others in violent and terrible ways. I don't want to relate to those powers, and I don't think you do either. This reminds me of what's written in 1 John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. The testing of and discerning of spirits is a common practice in the ancient world. For those of us who are living in modernity and postmodernity and we're exiting the secular frame and searching for transcendence, searching to move beyond the wall of self-transcendence, to even enter into the mystical, to do so, we should do so with a degree of caution, maybe learning a thing or two from our ancient grand great-grandparents, great-great-great-great-grandparents who maybe knew a thing or two about interacting with powers and agencies in this domain. But I spent enough time talking about that in the first part, and I don't want to get hung up on it again today. I do recognize that before we go any further, it would be wise for me to lay out a sort of philosophical theology and what consciousness is and why I think we actually have sound theological reasons to make a connection between these altered and higher states of consciousness and the spiritual. To do so, I want to draw upon the work of David Bentley Hart, one of the top living philosophers in the Christian tradition today. In David Bentley Hart's best-selling book, The Experience of God, Being, Consciousness, Bliss, Hart sets out to help his audience differentiate between classical conceptions of what the word God means from more modernist conceptions, which typically conceive of God as a sort of super thing in an arena of things. Hart argues that the mysteries of consciousness that riddle the sciences, and in particular, the, the reductive physicalism that seeks to reduce consciousness to merely an emergent property of complex physical processes, find a more suitable framework for understanding within the more classical conceptions of God found in multiple religious traditions. Hart writes that, quote, God is not only the ultimate reality that the intellect and the will seek, but is also the primordial reality with which all of us are always engaged in every moment of existence and consciousness, 
apart from which we have no experience of anything whatsoever. Or to borrow the language of Augustine, God is not only beyond my utmost heights, but also more inward to me than my inmost depths. End quote. Just a few pages later, Hart argues, quote, To speak of God properly, then, is to speak of the one infinite source of all that is, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, uncreated, uncaused, perfectly transcendent of all things, and for that very reason absolutely imminent to all things. God so understood is not something posed over and against the universe in addition to, nor is he the universe itself. He is not a being, at least not in the way that a tree, a shoemaker, or a god, lowercase g, is a being. He is not one more object in the inventory of things that are, or any sort of discrete object at all. Rather, all things that exist receive their being continuously from him, who is the infinite wellspring of all that is, in whom, to use the language of the Christian scriptures, all things live and move and have their being. In one sense, he is beyond being, if by being one means the totality of discrete, finite things. In another sense, he is being itself, in that he is the inexhaustible source of all reality, the absolute upon which the contingent is always utterly dependent, the unity and simplicity that underlies and sustains the diversity of finite and composite things, infinite being, infinite consciousness, infinite bliss, from whom we are, by whom we know and are, and in whom we find our only true consummation, end quote. Man, that is poetry. I've just picked up recently a book of collection of poems and excerpts written from Christian mystics, and that one should be in there. My goodness, what a, what a description. For heart, God is infinite consciousness, the, the ground of all conscious experience, not merely the first cause of it. And that's a big difference. We're not just talking about the first cause. We're talking about the very ground of all conscious experience and what we experience even as the present tense. And yet, as Hart argues, and I'm in agreement with him on this, our participation in this infinite consciousness, or what I've called before ultimate consciousness, is a finite participation. It's finite because we are contingent beings, and finitude is an inherent property of our existence. We are by our nature, finite, yet not merely just finite, our participation in this ultimate consciousness, which would encapsulate all that exists and is sustained by God, is also deficient because of sin. This is something that Christians have historically affirmed. We see in part, right? It's not just because of our finitude, it's because we have an inherent deficiency both within us and in some sense upon us that we are born into this world with. Sin with a capital S in the, in the cosmic sense that the, the Apostle Paul uses it in, a, a sort of, if we will, again, 
We've talked about some of this language in other episodes. If you want to go back to the episode on hyper objects, Paul uses the word sin as a sort of powerful hyper object at times, a, a principality and power. This is some of the work of biblical scholars highlighting what they sometimes call the apocalyptic Paul. So because of sin, because of this principality and power, our experience is not just merely limited by our finitude. Our experience of consciousness is is malformed, it's deformed, it's defective because of the presence of sin, but also the presence of sin in another sense, in that internal sense, in the sense that I used in the first part of this series when we talk about harmartia, missing the mark. Something in the cosmic order is not fully right. That is true. And yet something within us is sick and has misaligned our aims. We are prone to miss the mark. We are prone to wander. It doesn't mean I'm not going with some sort of hyper total depravity theology here. But this is what Christians from Roman Catholicism to Eastern Orthodoxy to all the various Protestant denominations have affirmed. There is something misaligned with our aims. We are oriented from birth because of the cosmic presence of sin, but also because of, in some sense, that the seed of Adam within us misaligns our aims. It is not always aimed true. We are prone to wander. And this means that not all of the movements of our mind are aimed towards truth, goodness, or beauty. And yet, when there is, to use the language of heart, a, quote, movement of the mind or will towards truth, goodness, beauty, or any other transcendent end, end quote, that movement is, quote, adherence of the soul to God, end quote. So maybe an analogy might be helpful. I'm a bit of a hoops head. I'm a gym rat. I'm the son of a high school basketball coach. I love basketball. I lived, ate, and breathed basketball throughout most, most of my life. And one of my favorite movies as a kid was The Pistol. It was a movie about the childhood of uh, NBA and even more so college basketball legend P- Pistol Pete Maravich. Pistol Pete Maravich's father pressed Preston Maravich, Preston Maravich was a college basketball coach. And there's this great scene in the pistol where Preston Maravich is conducting practice and then he stops practice. He's not happy with the way his players are performing and he grabs a basketball. Maybe some of you have seen this movie. I don't know. This is, this is a deep cut for, for basketball fans. You know, this is a deeper cut than Hoosiers or Coach Carter or anything like that. So anyways, he stops practice. And he draws a circle on the basketball with a, with a marker, right? He, and he calls, he calls his players together. And he says, you see the circle? This circle represents everything I know about basketball. But the size of this basketball represents everything about this game that's never been discovered. And then he taps a dot on the ball with the marker. And he says to this players, his players, my dad always loved this line. He, he said to him, this dot is what you know combined, you know, pointing at all of them. I love, I love that scene. The analogy here fails in some sense because of the finitude of the basketball, but I, I think this picture still may be helpful. 
our individual conscious experience is like a microscopic dot on the basketball of God in whom contains the totality of all conscious experience. What we do have is because we participate, we are on the basketball, we are the dot on the basketball. What we have is via participation in God who is the who has the totality, in him is the totality of all of our conscious experience and beyond our conscious experience is the totality of all consciousness and reality itself. Another helpful, maybe again, albeit inherently limited analogy, might be to consider our brains as not merely, think of our brains as perhaps local computers. Uh, I'm sitting in front of a computer right now. But not merely a local computer with just the ability to use its hardware to externally communicate its internal information via like a computer monitor screen or a pair of speakers. That's what a computer does in order to access the information in this computer. There is this screen that I'm looking at right now, and I have a couple of computer speakers, uh, some studio monitors in front of me. Right, And if I were to play music through those right now, it would be taking the information from inside the computer and communicating it to me. Oftentimes, we think of the way that we're connected with each other as being just simply we're local machines, local computers, and we've got monitors and we've got screens, we've got different ways of sharing the information that's locally in us with each other. But our brains are also connected, I think, and there's increasing evidence of this. I just posted an article about this on my Instagram page. Our brains may also be considered like being connected to a Wi-Fi network of consciousness. Again, the science on this is still very speculative. I am I am extrapolating this from a sort of philosophical theology as sort of Christian, historically Christian ontology of consciousness and debates on the nature of the soul, that we could consider our own mind, I'm not just talking about brain here, physical brain, but minds as part of and connected to the Wi-Fi network of consciousness. And this, this Wi-Fi network of consciousness is is grounded in the internet of God, if you will, the ultimate consciousness, the necessary consciousness. Now, no individual computer, no matter the hard drive size, can hold all of the internet. My computer does not hold and contain all of the data of the internet. That's impossible. Nor does it have the processing power to split its, I guess you could say, attention, and that's, I'm obviously anthropomorphizing my computer now in reverse here, but it doesn't have the attention, it doesn't have the processing power to split its attention to all of the possible information the ever-expanding internet holds. No, the computer has finite attention and finite capacity. And we talked about this in part one of this series. We have finite attention and capacity too. We do not have the endless uh, resources at our internal psychological resources at our disposal to be able to process all of the information in the world. That's ridiculous. We have to have framing boundaries. If we don't have framing boundaries, we experience what Verveke calls combinatorial explosion. There's just too much data to sift through to be able to determine and figure out what could possibly be salient or relevant to us. 
We have to process what is most relevant to us at any given moment. And we have to do this in a variety of ways. Much of our attention, whether we are consciously aware of it or not, is given to just staying alive. <laughs> and again, we're not consciously, most of us are not consciously thinking about the, the rhythms of our heartbeat or breathing or, you know, the functioning of our nervous system, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of unconscious energy. Our brain has these automatic processes that handle those events. But there's also a bunch of other things which are a little bit closer to the surface of our conscious awareness that are strictly dedicated to like survival, right? And hear me out here. When I start talking about this stuff, you know, some of you that are new and you come from Christian contexts and you're not comfortable with, um, you know, evolutionary creationism, which is the, 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 the picture of um, harmonizing science and theology that I hold to. That's okay. I've got plenty of stuff in the back catalog that you could go back and check out to have conversations about that. But also when I start, when we start talking about the ways that our attentive energy is given to self-preservation, that self-preservation is a fundamental goal, Christians listening to this with years of probably like good spiritual formation and, and maybe even some theology about the virtue of selfless giving and, you know, other-centered love might recoil at the thought of self-preservation occupying so much of our conscious attention. And, and in some sense, if that happens, if that's your guttural response is recoil at the sound of self-preservation, um, Given the cultural context we inhabit, I think there's some good to that. But I also would draw your attention to there's harmony here. Remember that at the very core of Jesus's summation of all the scriptures, when he was asked to, to sum up all the law and the prophets, he said it could be distilled down to this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That in some way, God has brought us to be via complex evolutionary processes that necessitate a drive to stay alive is not fundamentally sinful. It's not missing the mark that you want to stay alive. <laughs> that's, that's good. We were, God made us for a teleological purpose, right? You have it's good for you to be alive, right? Now, we, we, we are finite, so we are um, not made with the capacity, this side of union with Christ, to continue on into existence because of harmartia. Our, our continued existence with the presence of sin in our life would be like a cancer on this planet. So it is not fundamentally wrong to want to stay alive and that we have so much of our processing power dedicated to that is not fundamentally broken. The key though, if we are going to experience greater conscious awareness of our loving union with God, the key is that our desire for our own well-being must be extended outward beyond our own well-being and then aimed at our neighbor. This is at the core of loving your neighbor as yourself. Your self-preservation instincts should not come at the cost of the well-being of your neighbor. In fact, 
those instincts that you have, if you can direct them to the well-being of your neighbor and then ask the question, well, who is my neighbor? That's a good question. Think of the Good Samaritan. Think of uh, Jesus's statements about what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me, the extension of who this goes to. And maybe even the better question of who is it not extended to? It, it seems to keep going, right? This is the difference. If we're going to experience greater conscious awareness of our loving union with God, a byproduct of that kind of metanoia, is that our conscious energy doesn't like completely leave self-preservation. That's not the case. It's that that gets extended outward towards our neighbor and towards the rest of creation. It's good that my unconscious and, uh, and my conscious energy is invested in staying alive. Obviously, though, again, when that drive to preserve self comes at the cost of another person or the detriment of the good intended for the whole of creation, it is harmartia. It is missing the mark. It is sin. It is misalignment and it's dysfunctional. Our dot on the basketball must expand in that case. And an expansion might be the appropriate word. Because if we're to do a scan of our brains as these altered states of consciousness leading to that self-transcendent experience and beyond, which we're going to talk about, when we, if we're to look at those uh, as those were happening with brain, via brain scans like fMRI technology, etc., we would be able to see that there are these places, regions of the brain that are communicating together. We could see neural pathways being connected. Now, you can't see a neural pathway being connected per se with an fMRI scan, but hopefully you get, get what I'm trying to say here. These regions of the brain, there are new networks that get connected together in ways that had not been previously connected. We know that this is certainly true with those who have profound psychedelic experiences, those sorts of transcendent visions. New neural pathways happen. We are actually expanding the network connections of our brain on that physiological sense. Again, that to me doesn't mean that's the end of it, that we're talking purely a physical, physiological um, a physiological event happening within us. I'm bringing this up to say expansion is an appropriate word to talk about what's happening. And this is why I believe Verveke is right about the necessity of self-transcendence if we're going to awaken from the meaning crisis. This is why those who experience a transformative spiritual experience that produces lasting effects so often talk about things like, what do you hear them talk about? Ego death, the loss of selfish interest, or even in more Christian language, a death of self. The fruit of this kind of transformation does not come merely with just an altered state of consciousness or automatically with an experience of self-transcendence, but with that special subset of transcendent experiences that Verveke affirms as the mystical experience or encountering the sacred. The mystical experiences, encountering the sacred, these are the experiences that we struggle to put into words. 
where we might have our, our deepest epiphany. And think about the, the layers of meaning that that word epiphany has. Of course, in common vernacular, we might use the word to denote a sudden revelation or insight from the ancient Greek word, which means to, to shine or to bring light. But there's also the sense in which that word means a divine appearing, right? In Christianity, the epiphany is celebrated as the day that baby Jesus was revealed to the Magi. And think about it, Verveke, he argues that from the flow state and then into altered states of consciousness, we often experienced enhanced insights and intuition. Along with that, enhanced metaphorical cognition. And the ability to connect symbolic ideas via a bridging word symbol, that's what a metaphor is, are often the most effective metaphors to connect an idea to a physical, tangible experience. That's, that's the most effective metaphors that we have. Does the work of bridging a difficult concept that seems beyond words into an experience that we can identify with via some sort of tangible reference point. Like, are you grasping what I'm talking about? Should I break it down into smaller pieces? Hopefully all of this isn't too hard, right? All of what I just said right there, that's all metaphorical speech. Are you grasping what I'm talking about? Are you getting it? Do I need to break it down? Break what down? You know, we're talking about a metaphor. When I say, like, hopefully this isn't too hard, it's like, well, kind of mean difficult, but why does difficult mean hard? Metaphors expand. Another spatial metaphor. <laughs> Metaphors expand human cognition. Uh, Verveke highlights in his series that the expansion of metaphorical cognition was a significant factor in the explosion of culture and technology that happened in the Upper Paleolithic era. What was happening there? Man, incredible epiphanies, insights, revelations. But then what happens when you have that revelatory experience and you've, you've moved even beyond maybe just the self-transcendent into the mystical? Boy, so many of the great Christian mystics of the past, including the biblical authors who experienced deeply profound mystical experiences like the ones recorded in Isaiah chapter 6 or with John the Revelator, they confess almost universally the limitations of language when attempting to describe a mystical encounter with God in this higher state of, of conscious awareness. So like think about what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4, quote, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, of course, side note here, he's talking about himself, continuing on now, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell, end quote. Now, there's some debate about whether or not Paul meant permitted as in the sense like, no, you're not allowed to say, or permitted as in just simply unable to say, as in 
These things were inexpressible. They're beyond the bounds of language. Or think about what, like, the 5th century Christian mystic and, and theologian known as Pseudo-Dionysus meant when he wrote, quote, Unto this darkness, which is beyond light, we pray that we may come, and may attain unto visions through the loss of sight and knowledge, and that in ceasing thus to see or to know, we may learn to know that which is beyond all perception and understanding. For this emptying of our faculties is true sight and knowledge, end quote. Of course, this reminds you of even of course, the revelatory journey of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, knocked off his horse, and the revelation of Jesus causes blindness in a sense. He, he couldn't see, and there's a paradox <laughs> in this, a paradox in attempting to describe how the, the, the mystical experience is, is beyond the categorizations of our sense, sensory inputs that we wouldn't be able to fully take it in. We're the dot on that basketball. To move beyond the self-transcendent, not just to powers beyond us, but to the power, to, to God himself in the mystical, this is to come back from that experience is beyond, to try to give language to that, is beyond the limitations of our language. And so we're all, so often not stuck with, but this is just our finitude, that we all we have at our disposal are metaphors like light and darkness. How often do you see that sort of description of light and shining and glory and the glory of the Lord? And boy, what are even Isaiah 6, some of the angels doing? They're covering their eyes with a pair of their wings because the holiness of this God is, is blinding in some sense. It's beyond them. Miroslav Volf, theologian and philosopher at Yale Divinity School, calls this upward moving of contemplation as opposed to the inward move of meditation. That's, those are two different processes. See Verveke's part nine in Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series where he differentiates between meditation as a, an inward movement and contemplation as an upward or scaling outward movement. Miroslav Volf, the, the theologian professor at Yale Divinity School, calls the upward moving of contemplation into the mystical experience of God. He calls it the pathway of ascent. For Volf, there's a difference between just a mystical experience as a, quote, flight of the soul to God, end quote, and what Wolf would consider a prophetic journey, the prophetic journey, which also has a path of descent. And we're going to talk about that path of descent and what that means momentarily. Involves a public faith, how followers of Christ should serve the common good. Wolf calls the ascent movement of contemplation the, quote, receptive moment. But even in the journey of ascent, Wolf argues that one can have a receptive moment, a mystical experience, and still have what Wolf calls an ascent malfunction. He argues that there are two primary kinds of ascent malfunction. These two ascent malfunctions he calls functional reductions and idolatric substitutions. Both of these ascent malfunctions do not become apparent until 
what we might call the come down phase when the the mystical high is over and one has made their path of descent back into a new normative frame from the experience. For Wolf, functional reductions occur. This is one of the sorts of malfunctions that happen. They occur when the one who claimed to have a mystical experience loses faith in the significance of the encounter with God and doubts as to whether or not it was actually an encounter with God at all. Concerned that the ascent might not have actually happened, but yet feeling trapped as a trusted religious voice, they feign the pretense of ascent. Wolf writes this, quote, Gradually the language about God is hollowed out from within, maybe by lack of trust and inconsequential use until only a shell remains. And then that shell is put to what are deemed good uses. The prophets preach, but trust in their own insight, maybe informed by a nugget of psychological wisdom, a.k.a. Dr. Phil, or a piece of social analysis, a.k.a. Norm, Noam Chomsky, without even expecting that the faith might have anything distinct to say about the matter. With the prophets having abandoned the living God, churches and religious language morph into locations where God may have once been active, shaping people and their social realities, but in which God now lies dead, no longer a transformative reality, alive only as a topographic memory, end quote. Wow. It's quite an insight, I think, from, from Wolf about what happens when people who have once had, perhaps, transformative, mystical experiences, especially those that are in trusted positions of religious leadership, then they begin to perhaps doubt the veracity of those experiences. And instead of, you know, abandoning it altogether, they feign the pretense of ascent and they begin to trust in different insights from the ones that they experienced before. These might just be simple status quo these might be just borrowing from other normative frames that are frames that cannot see the solution outside of the box. <laughs> Taking again from that, that nine-dot puzzle problem, that they just can't see it. And so in this sort of ascent malfunction, there's plenty of talk about God, but God is functionally dead because talk of God is no longer a transformative reality. It's a, it's, it's a, a memory of where God was maybe once active, where the revelation once occurred, but no longer is present. It's no longer the transformative reality necessary to transform this particular cultural moment with its own unique cultural challenges that need transformation. It's its own unique puzzle. And that's why oftentimes in Christian churches, we don't need to abandon the religious language of the past, but we need to see how the particular religious language of the past was attached to revelations that brought insights to particular cultural contexts, and that we are not in that cultural context anymore. So we're not abandoning the truth, but what we are saying is that this needs some new transformative potency to it for our current cultural moment so that it wouldn't be impotent. 
This connects us to Wolf's second ascent malfunction, the one that he calls idolatric substitution. Idolatric substitution is when, quote, the prophet's image of God occludes the reality of God and insinuates itself in its place, end quote. Wolf uses this analogy. It's kind of a funny picture <laughs> when you think about it. He says, picture Moses ascending Mount Sinai to encounter Yahweh. And when he returns down the mountain on the path of descent, right? So path of ascent, mystical experience, revelation, path of descent. On that path of descent, he comes down and he's worried that Israel is already worshiping idols of golden calves. And, and not wanting to be rejected by Israel or maybe hurt anyone's feelings, he decides to bring down with him a golden calf instead of God's decrees. Right? It seems like a ridiculous, laughable picture. You'd go, Moses, you're not, you know, what kind of prophet are you? And that's kind of the point. But Wolf argues that this kind of thing does happen, and it happens all the time. People can have both a profound, momentary, mystical experience in their ascent, but as they move to descent, a horrible catastrophe <laughs> uh, happens in the process that keeps them from actually actual metanoia and genuine awakening. Wolf writes this, quote, for instance, sometimes by some strange alchemy, take up your cross and follow me morphs into, I'll bring out the champion in you, or the cross itself becomes a symbol of destruction and violence Rather than of create, rather than that of creative love that overcomes enmity. End quote. Of course, when Wolf's making the comparison to take up your cross and follow me, morphing into I'll bring out the champion in you, he's referring to a quote from a Joel Osteen book. So he's critiquing Joel Osteen there just to have, you know, clarity on who that critique is aimed at. How does this happen? How does the genuine transformative revelation? become cliche and bumper sticker? How does it become impotent? And Wolf argues, at least in one way, shape, or form, it is via this idolatric substitution. This is why I see a genuine awakening from the meaning crisis via a contemplative journey into wisdom, still inviting us to go deeper than even the mystical experience. It's from the mystical, even as one stands in the presence of God, it is in this place that we are invited, we are beckoned, even in the presence of God, to not resist the Spirit, to plunge deeper, to go higher into metanoia, so that when we make our descent back down the mountain of encounter, that we've actually been transformed, we've genuinely been awakened, and that we bring down with us the fruits in keeping with repentance. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, we meet a rich young man, a rich young man who has an epiphany. He encountered Jesus and believed, at very least, at the propositional level that this Jesus was an authoritative rabbi and a prophet who could show him the way to eternal life and the rule of God's kingdom. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. The rich young ruler encountered the word of God and yet did not experience metanoia. He did not have an awakening. Verveke might look at that rich young ruler and, and say that he did not experience at one The rich young ruler needed atonement. For Verveke, the scaling upward in contemplation, again, different from the downscaling of mindfulness meditation, can scale up to a sense of oneness, a cohesion with reality that Verveke calls at one very much playing on the Christian idea of atonement. He says you might even consider the sense of oneness, this at one uh, a superflow state. Verveke talks about those who have these profound at one moments, these mystical experiences. When they return, as it were, from these mystical experiences, from those states of consciousness, that they report them as feeling more real than the normal experiences of consciousness that they typically inhabited before. At least the people that along with this are producing the sorts of long-term positive effects that we associate with traditional religious experiences. Now, obviously, this is very different from many other experiences of altered consciousness. Not all of our altered states of consciousness, when we are done with them, do we kind of come back or come down or come out? Again, all these spatial metaphors. We don't always come out of those and go, you know, that, that seemed more real than anything I've experienced before. I mean, think about it. You wake up from most dreams. I dream regularly. I know some people don't dream a lot. But you wake up from most dreams in the night and you go, yeah, that wasn't real. Now, occasionally you have some that you feel like, man, that was pretty real. But by and large part, you wake up from and you go, yeah, that wasn't real. You drink too much alcohol and you get drunk and you might say some things that in that state of mind, you realize the next day when you're sober, you didn't actually believe that. This is not the case, though, for those who experience the at one mint for Veiki talks about. To shift this into the Christian theological frame, I might say that there are those who experience the reality of union with God via Christ's atonement, Christ's at one that they report a desire to see day-to-day reality transformed into the vision of that higher reality that they experienced. How does Mark's gospel summarize the message of Jesus' ministry? Quote, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, end quote. Like, that's, that's how he summarizes the message of Jesus. It was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, metanoia, take on this changed mind, this new way of seeing. Step into this higher reality because it's here. It's now. It's present in Christ. The epiphany. <laughs> the epiphany in the flesh here, right? 
This is presently available to you. Repent. You need to have a new way of seeing, right? And for people that have stepped into that, the message of Jesus is, my kingdom is, what is he, what did he say when he was accused by Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. It's a transcendent reality that those who have tasted and experienced it and have had that mystical transformative encounter, this atonement with Christ, those who have had it experience it as a reality that is higher than the one we live in. It's a reality which sometimes seems like totally absurd. Like consider the revelation of John, John the Revelator, who sees a slain lamb enthroned as the king of the cosmos, and he really believes it. And guess what? A lot of people who in those first few centuries believe they encountered the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Jesus, the encounter had revelations of Christ enthroned in glory. Guess what? They believed it enough to let the Roman Empire kill them just like Jesus was slain because they believed that that reality was higher and that there was going to be in Christ a final setting right. Now, some might look at that and go, that's a hallucination. Boy, well, okay. I can see why you get there. It's pretty wild. It's a pretty radical claim. I get it. We don't have time to, I'm not going to unpack, not to get into an apologetic mode, but I can see why some people get that, get to that point. This is where, though, we need to draw upon the great Christian philosopher, I think one of the great Christian philosophers of history, Soren Kierkegaard, to help us understand how this metanoia is linked with at-one-ment and genuine awakening. In some sense, the rich young ruler was only living in what Kierkegaard called the aesthetic fear, or maybe even he was in the ethical sphere. But let's talk a little bit about the aesthetic fear, the aesthetic sphere, the aesthetic life. This is one of Kierkegaard's essentially three stages of life. For Kierkegaard, the aesthetic sphere, the aesthetic, aesthetic stage of life was a phase where one's only concerns were for a life immediately lived, the, the life in the moment, the, the life, the, the living simply on the surface of life. Those who are just in the aesthetic sphere, they live just on the surface of life. They do not go deeper. Kierkegaard didn't just have the pleasure-seeking hedonist in mind when he talked about the person living in the aesthetic sphere. He also considered the philosopher preoccupied with ruminating on philosophical abstractions that leave them unchanged, which is something he accused Hegel of, as being stuck in the aesthetic too. Even this kind of brilliant intellect, like an intellect like Hegel, they are confused because they confuse mere thought with actual existence. So even for someone like Kierkegaard, you can be a brilliant intellect, but because you are not actually pursuing what this means in existence, you're not not after wisdom, you're stuck in the aesthetic. For Kierkegaard to become an what he called an authentic self, one must become the synthesis of the finite 
and the infinite. The one stuck in this aesthetic phase remains stuck in despair because they have not plunged into the infinite to become an authentic person. They remain simply in their finite self, and to be an authentic self means a journeying into the infinite so that we can experience the synthesis of the finite and the infinite. The rich young ruler here, even though he encountered Christ, still leaves in despair because he has not plunged into the trust of the infinite. And as a result, he does not experience metanoia, and he remains in despair. How odd to walk away sad from an encounter with Jesus and yet still be immensely wealthy. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that, especially in our cultural context. It's hard to imagine why someone would still walk away sad and not just go like, well, I'm still rich. Like, how weird to say that this this rich young ruler is sad walking away and yet still possessing all of his wealth. I believe that it's this Kierkegaardian despair. That, that is actually at the center of what we really truly mean when we talk about the meaning crisis. The meaning crisis at its core is about addressing despair. Kierkegaard's wisdom to all the rich young rulers in despair is this, quote, When is despair completely eradicated? It occurs when the self, in relating to itself and in wanting to be itself, is grounded nakedly in the power that established it. In other words, when it is related openly to and dependently on God. To transcend despair is neither to become finite nor to become infinite, but to become an individual in their synthesis, which God alone holds together. Insofar as the self does not become itself in this way, it is not itself. And to not be oneself, as God created you, is despair. End quote. To transcend despair, one must move from the aesthetic sphere to the ethical sphere and into what Kierkegaard called the religious sphere. This is the place of genuine metanoia that comes through this headlong plunge into the infinite ocean of God. Perhaps maybe even the rich young ruler, we, maybe, we could maybe even think that he might have even stepped out from the aesthetic into the ethical sphere. After all, He did follow the commandments, and he did seem concerned about his own piety. He seemed to live intentionally in some sense, right? At least he's trying to follow the the Torah. Yet when he is confronted with the wide chasm between himself and God, the finite and the infinite, the rich young ruler does not allow himself to fall into that chasm where grace would come to rescue him and unite him with God. Kierkegaard argues that it is seeing this chasm and recognizing our inability to transform ourselves alone that is the necessary step into the religious sphere, to to the authentic self. The infinite qualitative difference between man and God can initially seem like a weight of despair when you look out and you feel this gap. But for Kierkegaard, 
the revelatory paradox of the God-man, Christ Jesus, received via faith, brings an experiential revelation that this chasm actually has no separation in Christ. This is the metanoia, the incarnate Christ crucified. Kierkegaard writes, quote, Only in surrender can the eternal be gained. End quote. This is awakening. Now, before we conclude today, I want to be clear. I very much detest the sort of one single experience fixes everything common evangelical misunderstanding. Like you just run down, have an altar call, and now your life is totally fixed. As if a singular, genuine moment of metanoia brings you back down the mountain with everything you need for the rest of your life. That's, I don't think that's how it works. I don't see the biblical evidence for it. I don't think that's been the experience of saints past. Now, do I think people can have an Augustine-like conversion experience and the kinds of life-altering mystical experiences that I'm referring to? And the ones Verveke also affirms, albeit not in precisely the same way as I, do I affirm that those do seem to exist and produce in people life-altering permanent changes? Yes. But I also want to say this. The scriptures also affirm renewing your mind. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about being transformed into Christ-likeness with a, an ever-increasing glory, or I sometimes like how the King James puts it, translates, and translates it as moving from glory to glory. So this is not, as I so frequently encounter in, in the evangelical settings I've inhabited all of my life, this is not just, I had one moment and I'm good to go, and I never need metanoia again. This is the sort of thing that actually, um, it actually makes evangelicals, to be very frank, speaking to my own tribe, <laughs> a frustrating group of people to be around because we associate that conversion experience, which I'm very thankful for, and I'm so glad so many people experience with it. We associate that with getting everything we need to know about the world as if now we have access to everything, that we see everything clearly, and it just simply isn't the case. It doesn't mean that that moment of salvific union in Christ, that moment of leaping headlong into the wonder of God, that that wasn't a valid experience. But it is to affirm that still continually we are finite. We are finite. And our finitude at times can produce devastating results for other people when we do not see the need for our finitude to increasingly expand from glory to glory. When we do not recognize the need for sanctification or in the Eastern tradition, theosis, we do not see the need for ever-increasing perpetual union with God. That's a problem. And I don't just mean, again, union with God in the just purely um, religious sense that we might imagine that word, that phrase meaning, like we're just talking about, uh, you know, in, improved Bible memorization, or I swear less, or, you know, these sorts of things that we... <laughs> so often associate with 
you know, having, being a sanctified follower of Christ, what I'm talking about in the ever-increasing glory is that dot on the basketball expanding, expanding to see the world through a God's eye view, an increased state of conscious alignment with the infinite source of wisdom. It's becoming better in our ability to understand God's goodness in his world through math or science, through medicine, through music, through beauty, through poetry. From our metanoia experience and awakening into a new experience of the world, we travel back via what Wolf calls the pathway of descent. The evidence of our transformation should be what's called throughout the New Testament as fruits in keeping with repentance or the fruits of the Spirit. We descend not with complete and total access to the mind of God and the contents of all reality, but we do descend with a new normative frame. We should bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This is at the core of the gospel message. This actually should help us understand these artificial divides that we've placed between Paul and the book of James and faith and works. When Paul says there is no righteousness apart from faith in Christ, He's not saying that only Christians who've made some profession of faith can be righteous. That's a total misunderstanding. What he's saying is the fount of righteousness by which we derive all righteousness is Christ. So there is no righteousness apart from faith in Christ. There is no truth, goodness, or beauty apart from its participation in the Logos, in the God who sustains and holds together all all of it. But again, it's not as if we descend the mount with complete and total access to all the contents of reality. But we do have a new normative frame. Our salience landscape changes. What is relevant to us changes. Even, I might suggest, some of our basic survival instinct program might even undergo a radical transformation. Think about the great saints of the past that willingly endured being torn to shreds by lions in the Roman gladiatorial games instead of denying the reality of an empire not of this world that they believed they had tasted. You don't shut off that survival instinct that easily, okay? This is it's, it's a profound sense of transformation that would allow somebody to override or to reprogram. That's a systemic change, a total program. Uh, operating system change. You think about others throughout history. You know, we're in the middle still of a pandemic that keeps going on and on. And I think about those saints of the past who entered into leper colonies and places of plague that would make COVID-19 seem mild in order to care for the sick. And they did that fully aware that this might kill them, but they did not fear death. That's a new normative frame. (laughs) This is what, this sort of experience is what I believe Verveke calls a systematic insight, in that the insight or epiphany stretches beyond just figuring out one problem, like the nine dot problem. It's an epiphany that changes the whole operating system. Now, again, I could just list off the fruits of the Spirit as a Christian adherent and say, here you go, 
Here's what to look for as evidence of genuine awakening in this systematic insight. But because I want to be conversant with those of you who may just be here because you enjoy Verveke's work, here's several shared features, or if I can, a fruit of systematic insight according to John Verveke's research. All right? These are four things John Verveke identifies with uh, as we might say byproducts or fruit, or at the very least shared features of those people, according to his research and the research of other cognitive scientists that he's drawn upon, the sorts of um, fruit produced by those who claim to have this positive, genuine awakening experience, the systematic insight. And again, I want to be clear, I'm not, these aren't just people that who have claimed to have specifically Christian awakening experiences. So I'm, I'm not just trying to say, here's what, what happens when someone becomes a Christian, all right? But these are people that have had genuine, uh, transformative, certainly transformative experiences that they claim are mystical, that they claim give them a sense of at-one-ment. And here are the four fruits <laughs> that John Verveke highlights. Number one, clarity. Clarity defined as an expansion of vision and simultaneously a greater awareness of finite details. It's as if people that have these transformative mystical experiences that claim a sense of either encountering God and some of this, again, I have to be honest, happens for those who have had psychedelic experiences. It's happened for those in other religious traditions. And in order to kind of do some religious pluralism dialogue, that's going to need to be um, an entirely different episode. In fact, I've got a series on that. You can look up In Christ Alone, the uh, three or four part series I did, um, I believe in 2020, maybe it was just this year in 2021. You can check that out, but we're not having a religious pluralism <laughs> discussion right now. People who report having a life-altering mystical experience, one that produces genuine awakening in them, talk about clarity. They feel an expanded sense of vision for the entirety of it all, and yet simultaneous with that, not just their, 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 their heads up in the clouds and they're no, of no earthly good, they also report a greater awareness of finite details. Interesting, right? The second fruit, if you will, <laughs> beauty. People who have these genuine awakening experiences, according to John Verveke's research, feel as if coming out of it, they have a greater appreciation for beauty, like the world is pregnant with energy and significance. It's filled with wonder. The third fruit is peace. People who have these transformative awakening experiences, these systematic insights report an enhanced inner sense of connectedness to reality where they feel that the various facets of their inner life are working together in mutual harmony. They feel at peace. Pretty profound experience, huh? Finally, number four, Verveke says that uh, reports that those who have had these kinds of experiences also report a sense of joy marked as a tremendous sense of energy and vitality. It's like almost like they ease, more easily enter into like a continuous sense of the flow state. 
They feel an exciting sense of being at one in the very core of their being. They feel at one with reality around them. They don't feel um, despair. Now, here's the question I want to pose to you. Does, is there harmony or dissonance with these four fruits of John Ravakey's research and what we might call as the fruits of the Spirit or fruits in keeping with repentance? I would suggest one would be hard-pressed to find dissonance between what we can call Ravakey's fruits of systematic insight and the Apostle Paul's fruits of the Spirit. That's because I believe that consciousness dot on the infinite basketball of God expanded. And as that expansion happens, our experience of bliss expands as we grow in greater union with God. Which leads me to ask, what would a permanent and perpetually expanding sense of this kind of bliss feel like? I don't know, but we might call it eternal life. Thanks for listening to this episode of Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. This program is made possible because of the generous support of listeners just like you on Patreon. Able to do this without advertisement because people that listen care. Thank you for your support. I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Anders, BJ, Carolyn, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Mark, John Michael, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke H, Matthew, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Taylor S, Tim K. Thank you all for your generous support. If you want to get involved in Deep Talk's Patreon community, there are plenty of benefits there that I think might be worth your while. We have discussion forums for every episode. We've been doing that for at least a year now. I think that's true. I don't want to lie, <laughs> but I think it's been at least a year. I don't know. You can check on that. But from now on, every episode has a discussion forum on Patreon. So if you had thoughts about this and you wanted to engage with me and other listeners from across the world, you can participate in that discussion forum. Of course, you find the link for that on my Patreon page. I try to make sure I pin that at the top of the page so it's easy to access. But along with that, we also do monthly Zoom group discussions where I hop online with supporters in Theology 201 groups and higher. And we talk not only about what's been on these podcasts, but what people are reading and consuming, the things that are producing transformation in them. And these are just incredibly wonderful times together. I'm so thankful for them and I'm thankful for those that have been able to participate in those. Um, but there's also bonus Q&A episode questions and other things like that. I just want to thank you for your support, everyone. Um, I can't do this podcast without your support. I'm trying to get to a goal of 300 supporters. And once we get to that level, we'll be able to produce weekly ad-free episodes. So thanks for considering supporting. Finally, if you wanted to reach out to me, you can reach out to me on Patreon, but also you can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram. And I guess also finally, boy, that's not really finally if you say also finally. <laughs> Also, finally, if you felt like leaving a review on um, Apple Podcasts, that is the number one place people are still going to discover new podcasts. And if you leave a review and a rating on it because you think this might be helpful to others, that will increase the likelihood that someone else 
discovers this podcast too. So thank you all for your support. Reach out to me. I'd love to hear your feedback, your opinions, your points of agreement, your points of disagreement. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.